I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The new EU Confidential podcast gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by the European Commission. Investing in youth is a priority of this European Commission. The European education area we are building is already creating new opportunities for all young people. The second European Education Summit, hosted by Commissioner Navracic in Brussels on September 26th, will be a key moment to explore the next steps. From Brussels, Berlin, Paris and London, this is the new EU Confidential. Welcome to the new EU Confidential podcast. As regular listeners will know, host Ryan Heath has moved to the US. So how do you replace Ryan? Well, with a cast of thousands, well, at least four uh, in this case. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor. And with me are political correspondents from around Europe. And together we're going to have a look at the big story of the week. And that, of course, is Brexit. So hi to Reem Montaz from Paris. Bonjour. Hi to Annabel Dixon from London. Hello. And hi to Matt Karnichnik from Berlin. Guten Tag. Okay, Annabel, why don't you kick us off? Just give us a sense of what it's been like to be caught up in this Brexit drama. We're recording on Wednesday uh, after a very dramatic night when rebels seized control of the House of Commons. The government suffered a big defeat. Where were you? How did it feel? How did it play out? That's right. I mean, I've just been in the middle of drama and talking to colleagues. It sounds like everyone's been watching this drama. So we've been at the sort of centre of this worldwide blockbuster. So it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. So I, I spent the night actually um, standing outside the entrance to the House of Commons chamber as MPs were going in and out deciding. And I actually, you know, was walking past MPs sort of furrowed brow, hand, head in hands, as they decided whether or not to defy the Prime Minister and effectively kind of end their parliamentary careers. And what was incredible, so I spend a lot of time in these corridors and try and sort of ambush MPs as they're coming out, was the the sort of willingness to come out and brief. So you had, um, and the sort of contrast, so you had the sort of seething anger of these non-Brexiteer Tories who were about to be deselected, who were sort of openly briefing their fury and predicting the sort of end of the Conservative Party as they knew it. And then a minute later, Brexiteers would come up sort of unrepentant, you know, saying, well, they were warned. Uh, We told them they're defying the will of the people. Very sort of strident and actually very upbeat, surprisingly. You'd think their leader had lost his majority. They're actually very upbeat about the prospects of a general election. They very much want one. 
The question, of course, which I suspect we'll come on to is whether they're actually going to get one when they want it. Right. And maybe just explain, because I think there's a lot of bafflement across Europe of what's been going on. People are absolutely transfixed by this. I mean, it's amazing drama. But what's the what do you think is the, the end game or, or the game plan from Boris Johnson and his team? So Boris Johnson says he doesn't want an election, but he actually does want an election because, as we saw, he's only had that majority of one. He's lost it. Let's face it, he's done his utmost to throw away that majority (laughs) this week, expelling 21 of his party. And I mean, actually, the rebellion was a lot bigger than number 10 expected. Um, You could see this. I kind of looked on their faces as those numbers came in. So he sort of wants this election, but he wants Labour to be the ones that call it. He wants to blame everyone but himself for calling it. So he's offered Labour, who've been saying they want an election, the chance of an election, But Labour is saying, well, we're not going to fall into the trap. We're not going to give you an election on your terms. So we're actually not going to vote for it until we can actually try and legislate to stop no deal. And why why is he so confident about an election? Why does he think that can work in his favour? Well, I think the timing of it, he wants it now because he has got this do or die October the 31st pledge. So it's partly to do with wanting to strengthen his hand in the hope that he can show other European capitals that he does actually have support at home. He thinks it will strengthen his negotiating position, um, something I'm sure that esteemed colleagues sitting next to me will have something to say about. But it's very much more so about the domestic situation. He, He wants to win over those Brexit party voters. And now is the time, he thinks, with that sort of post-leadership election surge. He thinks there's a bit of a Boris bounce, is what what he's what number 10 are calling it. He thinks that now is a good chance. And he wants a majority. He wants his place in the history books. So the idea is he rallies all the Brexit votes in kind of one block and the Remain votes or the, the no hard deal or no hard Brexit, no no deal Brexit camp are divided and so he mm. ends up with a majority. Exactly. But... but it's a big ask. And I spoke to Nigel Farage on Monday night. He'd just been doing the first of his party conference rallies. So I had a quick chat to Nigel Farage. And there's absolutely no way that he's on the on the page of electoral packs. While Boris Johnson is still talking about a deal, Nigel Farage is not in any sort of mood to hand over those Brexit party voters. So let's look at how this is playing out in Europe what Berlin and Paris make of it? Because obviously the, the British government idea, I think, partly is if there, if there is to be a deal, you know, it's going to be Berlin and Paris that will move somehow. Matt, people always, uh, on, the, on the kind of Brexiteer side, there was a lot of talk about how sooner or later German industry would kind of weigh in, especially the car industry, and prevail upon Angela Merkel to do some kind of deal to move towards the Brits to keep that economic channel uh, very much open. Is that a misplaced belief and why? I mean, based on what we've we've seen so far, it's completely misplaced because they've had plenty of opportunity to step in and to, you know, start waving their hands and say, you know, we need to do something here. You need to cut a deal. And they've just continued on to support the government. If you look at all of the statements from the major car makers, it's very much the European Commission's party line. I think that they also see in the long term that it would be bad for their companies if the European market were somehow damaged by Brexit. So even though the UK is the largest car market for German car makers outside of of Germany in Europe, they're still not stepping in and saying, you know, you need to cut some kind of deal with Boris Johnson. And I think what's happened over the 
past week or so really makes them think that, you know, that's been a good policy and that they're going to stick with it. And the same is true for the German government that, you know, there, there are these constant questions. Well, when are they going to acknowledge that they have a lot at stake here and sit down with uh, with Boris Johnson? And I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. Any chance of a change from Paris, Reem, in terms of their attitude to Brexit? Not that I'm picking up on. It really feels like le jour le plus long. It's, it's Groundhog Day and from the French perspective. And for them, it's an even actually simpler perspective than I'm hearing from Berlin. The president, Emmanuel Macron, laid it out a few months ago very simply. He said the only circumstances are under which there would be a change in position would be if there was what he called a new political act, a new political fact. And that is either a general election or a referendum on the withdrawal agreement. Um, Boris Johnson was in Paris a couple of weeks ago meeting with Emmanuel Macron and I asked him in the courtyard, you know, are you coming with a concrete alternative to backstop? He tried to avoid answering that question and when I followed up with him to say, Mr. Prime Minister, you haven't answered... It was very interesting. Macron, instead of what he usually does, which is shut down follow-ups and says, thank you very much, uh, we have a lot of work to do, he just stood there and looked at him. Did not help him out. And that was a very interesting dynamic. And then the prime minister tried to sort of give us an answer and, and, and moved on. Um, nothing has changed on the French side. Every time, like I have this conversation with French officials, I think twice or three times a week. And they keep telling me, we just repeat ourselves. Nothing is new. But isn't there concern? I mean, ultimately, they, you know, you have Calais, which is a you know, huge port, which connects with, with the UK. I mean, this is not going to, if it does become a no-deal Brexit, this is not going to be painless for anyone, including the French. The French have been very clear that they are not fans of Brexit. And if they had their way, the UK would just stay in the EU. They're very clear on the fact that no deal, especially no deal, is going to be very costly for them. But they're also saying, you know, we are responsible politicians. We have put in place all of the preparations we can to uh, make sure that even in the event of a no deal, it's as painless as possible. Uh, but of course, there are concerns and there have been many uh, government seminars with big businesses and smaller businesses to help them prepare for that eventuality. Hmm. What about the Germans? What are they kind of most worried yeah, well, about? I, you know, I, I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which the Europeans on this point feel that they're on the moral high ground and have been there from the beginning. And they feel that they're playing by the rules. They've done everything that they said they would do. They've lived up to their end of the bargain, you know, negotiating this deal, which then went to the UK and so on and so forth. And and so I think that they like that feeling. You know, I mean, the EU, <laughs> EU gets, you know, kind of beaten around a lot for, for various things. And here, you know, they feel, well, here we've actually done something right. We've also preserved the unity of the EU, which is a good thing. Uh, I was at this diplomatic reception in Berlin last night, and there were a number of ambassadors there to Germany. And I, I was surprised to the degree that uh, Brexit did not come up. Uh, you know, there were people talking about their visit to the Salzburg uh, Festival, to the Bayreuth Festival. Um, <laughs> that's a tough life. They were, yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. <laughs> a very interesting tip on that. Apparently, you see the same people in Bayreuth going to Salzburg. They all fly on the same oh, plane. Oh, really? There's yeah, a, little, we, a circuit? Next year, we'll have to get a seat on that yeah, plane. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, leave and, that with me. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's probably 
you know, an issue that maybe they should be paying more attention to right now, quite frankly. But I, I, I think that the European leaders, is my impression, outside of Brussels anyway, are sitting back and enjoying this theater in London uh, like like the rest of us. And they might not be thinking to the degree one might expect about what the, what the fallout will be if there really is a no-deal Brexit. You know, certainly for the German economy beyond the car industry, there will be substantial impact. That said, exports, German exports to the UK have fallen already over the last couple of years. So, you know, that means that the UK has become slowly a less important market for German exporters anyway. But it is still one of one of the largest, I think the fifth largest. Matt, it's interesting that you use the word theater because a, a French official told me exactly that. He said to me last week that they feel like they're just spectators of a British political drama. Right, right. I think just one more point on that, that they want to let it play out, too. Mm. I mean, the, the kind of miracle crowd say, you know, we're not going to intervene here until it's clear what the political situation in the UK right. is. They're sort of waiting for the final act. And actually, that is interesting you say that because I was one of the sort of Boris Johnson threats to those who were defying him was, well, you're just playing into the EU hands. They're just waiting to see you do this and you're doing exactly what they want you to do. How much is that the case, that, that they are just waiting to see? Well, I, th- I think that's absolutely right, uh, what, what he's saying, and why, why wouldn't they do that? And I, I think that's one of the reasons that, that Merkel's statements uh, a couple of weeks ago when, when Boris Johnson visited her in Berlin were widely misinterpreted, where she said, you know, well, well, you know, maybe in a month, why not a month? And that was taken as a as an actual deadline, uh, whereas she was just playing for the cameras, trying to look, you know, like somebody who was being quite reasonable. And, you know, I think her main goal that day was to not be left holding the bag once, you know, the whole situation goes uh, pear-shaped, as you say. <laughs> okay, well, I think we'll uh, end it there. I mean, we'll have Many, many chances to come back to Brexit again and again and again. And no doubt there'll be an all night summit or two before we can even take a pause from Brexit before. And of course, after Brexit finally happens, if it does, then there's going to be a whole new round of uh, trade talks and everything else to sort out. So plenty to talk about. So, Andrew, there's always been a part that is interviews in this podcast. And I know that you had the chance to sit down with two new MEPs recently. Right. And uh, yeah, people are not just going to hear from us in this podcast. We're very much going to keep the interviews going. We're looking for interesting people involved in politics all across Europe. And I thought it'd be interesting to sit down this week. It's the rentrée in Brussels. It's kind of back to school. Politicians are back in town. And I sat down with two new MEPs, people who are discovering this place for the first time. And uh, what also makes them interesting is that they are recording a podcast as they discover Brussels and the European Parliament and, uh, you know, all the arcane procedures and how it all works. They're actually recording a podcast talking about that. So I uh, sat down in this very studio, in fact, yesterday with Caroline Voden and Judith Bunting. They're both Liberal Democrat MEPs. And I should say, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, Caroline is a former colleague of mine. Uh, we used to get work together at Reuters a long time ago, and she's a very interesting story about how she suddenly found herself as an MP and also in a kind of limbo, as all British MEPs are. They don't actually know how long they're going to be here. So let's listen to that interview now. Just before we get to the interview, let's have a quick word from this week's sponsor. A message from the European Commission. Building a better Europe means empowering young people. 
That is why the European Commission is investing in their education and creating new opportunities for them to shape society. The foundations of a true European education area have been laid, strengthening excellence and inclusion, building a future in which learning abroad will become standard for young people. European universities are being developed, a game changer for students in Europe's higher education landscape. New initiatives like the European Solidarity Corps and Discover EU are enabling young people to bring positive change to communities and experience what it feels like to be European. And to keep up Europe's commitment to youth, the Commission is seeking to double funding for the iconic Erasmus programme. These are excellent achievements to build on. The second European Education Summit. Hosted by Commissioner Navracic in Brussels on September 26, will be a key moment to explore the next steps. Caroline Voden, Judith Bunting, welcome to EU Confidential. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. Glad to be here. As I was saying just before we started recording, a number of, of things that make you particularly interesting, I think, to our listeners. And one of them is that, that neither of you is a career politician. And so maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about what you did before and how you got here. Caroline? I was a journalist for about 20 years. The first 10 years of my working life was spent at Reuters as a international correspondent. I spent a few years in and out of the Balkans during and after the uh, Yugoslav war. And then I did various editing and writing jobs and things like that, uh, raised a family. And the last job I did before I was elected was um, managing a charity that worked with prisoners who were, we sort of, it was a rehabilitation, resettlement type programme. And I joined the Liberal Democrats on the 24th of June 2016, the morning after the referendum, because I was absolutely devastated at the result. And also I felt that I hadn't done anything. I hadn't got involved and I had just sat shouting at the television. And I suddenly realised that actually you can't do that. And, you know, I felt like I had something to offer and I should stand up and put my money where my mouth was and be counted and all that and got involved and didn't really expect this. But here I am three years later as an MEP, which is absolutely amazing and totally unexpected. Well, Judith? Uh, my story starts about two years earlier than you, um, not much more than that. I joined the Liberal Democrats after I finished 30 years of working at the BBC. Um, and at the BBC, I was very content. I was a science journalist, so I was never into news. I was never into this pesky investigative reporting, never into politics at all. Um, I did science journalism and I investigated the science and I tried to bring it to the people. And after I left the Beeb and was working in the commercial sector, I did feel a kind of yearning for a bit of public service, if that doesn't sound too um, Pollyanna. So I thought, where can I get this? And who's the smartest boy in the room? I don't know if your mother gave you that advice, but always try and sit in the room with the smartest person at your work and then you'll learn from them. And I thought, I'm living in Twickenham. The smartest boy in the room is evidently Vince Cable. I've been voting for him for 20-odd years. So... I'll go and try and help him. So I stuffed leaflets through letterboxes. And um, I remember the day I met him. Um, we were doing a bookstall at a village fete and someone came up and he introduced me as Judith Bunting, an activist. And I turned and went, I'm not an activist. And he said, oh, you will be. 
And <laughs> how right I he am. was. How right he was. But coming back to the MEP-ness, I absolutely 100% did not expect to get elected. Um, I put myself forward uh, thinking that it would be much more fun to be involved in the campaign if I was like number five or six on the list of ten. Then I would have an excuse to go and do hustings, which I love, and to really try and represent the party so that Catherine and Anthony, who are our number one and number two, would get elected. So to find that I was number three on the list was a surprise. It was very nice. But even so, Catherine and Anthony were going to get elected. And it was not, honestly, I, I kid you not, it was not until they put the numbers in front of us in on the night of election that... We knew I'd been elected and it mattered hugely because the southeast is Nigel Farage's backyard. So everyone was expecting the Brexit party to increase their representation. They nabbed all the seats that UKIP had had before, so they got those four. And we were all expecting them to squeeze in another one, which would have been terrible. But the news was such that the Brexit party was on the up. And fantastically, they didn't. They did not increase the representation in the southeast, whereas we went up from one to three. And here I am. So how do you find being a politician? Both come from journalistic backgrounds, which, you know, sometimes requires a certain scepticism, maybe even cynicism, kind of asking the question, the awkward questions. Now, you know, part of being a politician is, is towing the party line to an extent. You know, how do you find it? How do you find the whole message discipline thing? No, oh, I think I still ask plenty of awkward questions. <laughs> yes, yes. I, a yes. lot of what I've been doing, I find the skills very transferable. So, for example, I've just spent the last three weeks travelling around my constituency in the southwest of England, meeting businesses and farmers, fishermen, you know, lots of people, to find out what Brexit's really going to mean for them. And, you know, having meetings and asking questions and, and drilling down and getting the answers and working out what the you know, what the key point is. And, and, you know, as you know, that's that's what we did. Mm. I, w I would second that. And also, this is a little bit more in the bubble, but also when you're assessing documents, just trying to make sure that the Euro-English is saying what you think it's saying. <laughs> uh, because every so often you get a <laughs> sentence or a reference and you think, I don't think that's what that person would be trying to say. Um, today there was something about youth workers and they didn't mean youth workers, they meant young people who were oh. workers, you know. <laughs> and in English it's a fundamental difference. And just I'm saying, no, send it back, you change your English. Because being clear, certainly when you're working spoken English, but also of course in print, but being clear and concise and absolutely as accurate as you can be is really important. Did you struggle with some of the, the things that you had that were expected of you very early on? I mean, you had you barely arrived and I guess somebody was saying, now we have to vote for Ursula von der Leyen. You know, how did you deal with that? Well, we've done a podcast on it. I have to tell you today, this morning, I got presented with a list of how you're going to vote tomorrow and I could feel it happening again. My hackles rose, my blood pressure went up and my poor appa had to be going, why, why, who's this, what's this, where is the information? I don't mind voting with the group. I will be very cooperative to anybody who, providing I agree with what they're saying, but I will be as cooperative as I can be, providing you give me the information it's when you're just presented with a list and you have no background information. Mm. It's an insult and it makes me angry. But this afternoon we've had a meeting, we've got the information, so I'm all cooperative again. Mm. Caroline, how did you deal with the, the von der Leyen um, election? I was pleased that we were able to meet her and I thought it was brilliant of her in such a busy week to come and meet 
five people from the Lib Dems and sat opposite her round a table that wasn't much bigger than this. Oh, I didn't realise that. So yeah. she did a small just with... We had an hour with uh-huh. her. So, so five of us representing the group of 16. And we asked her lots of questions and we were quite pointed about how where she stood on things like an extension and stuff like that. So that it felt like we'd had a little bit of a, a possibility to talk to her, you know, as a find out what she was like. And that it did feel very, very strange within a week of arriving to be told how to vote. But as you just said, you know, you, you, there's reasons for it, and as long as you, as long as you kind of know why you're voting for that person, that's fine. I should say that you, you already got a little bit of the jargon right. An APA is a, oh, a parliamentary assistant, and I know from your yes. from your podcast you've interviewed some APAs already, so yes. they get a voice as well. What surprised you most about this job, about the European Parliament? I'm surprised at how many staff you need. I was talking to my sister the other day on the phone, and she she thought I had one assistant, and I said, actually, I've got six staff, and she just couldn't believe it. Like, why? And I've got three staff here in Brussels, and they're all flat out, really, really busy. And to anybody else, that just seems incredible. But it just shows how much work there is and and how much preparation goes into every meeting and every conversation. Um, and, you know, all that stuff that they read up on and the background information that they have and that they can condense down so that you only have to deal with the absolute minimum because you just wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. So that I think for me that's been, you know, being elected and then suddenly having to appoint people to a job where you don't know what the job involves for yourself, let alone for them, and you have to find staff. That was that was really quite scary. Yes, mm. yes. yes, because you, we were. We were staffing before we knew what the job really involved. And I think that we misrepresent the role of these young young people by calling them assistants because they have expertise and obviously you you know people gain expertise going up the the grades but certainly one of the assistants on my team I would say is quite a senior grade producer at the BBC and it was when I it was actually when I looked at her salary um, but also when I realized the seniority that this person wasn't an assistant it's somebody who I can trust to go away so if I have if I have a meeting I'm here. Um, and ETRE is still carrying on with a very important meeting. Um, I'm on the Research Industry and Energy Committee. But there's an important presentation going on at the moment. So she's in there being me, listening. She's not asking questions, but she's listening, taking notes, noticing things I might be interested in so that then she'll meet me afterwards, brief me on what I missed. And then if I want follow up questions, I can do them, you know, following up. But you are asking these people to Oh, of course, they're being our assistants as well. Um, it's more like advisors, isn't it? It's more like advisors, yeah. but they organise meetings, they do video recording, they take photographs and they do all of this policy work. They're mm. fantastic. Now, you've just been elected, but due to Brexit, obviously, you don't know how long you're going to be here. It could be quite a short time. Obviously, everything, even as we record this, is is in the balance, yeah. up for grabs. Um how do you cope with that personally and professionally, knowing that you could be here for a couple more months or, or it could be longer? You just don't know. Myself, I'm the easy one. I'm not working at the moment. I'm fortunate enough to have a small pension and I'm not rich, but I'm fine. So I was in a gap after a contract uh, and that's why I thought I'd get on the list and, and have an exciting six weeks going through the election. Fine, so it's turned into... Well, I was going to say it's turned into an exciting few months. No, we are going to stay. 
Carol, I just wonder professionally, you know, most MEPs, they, they know they're going to be here or can be here mm. for five years. They can make living arrangements, you know, they can mm. decide to rent a flat, they can build a bit of a life here in Brussels. Is that harder when you just don't know how long you're going to be around? I think it is quite hard. It's quite stressful. I've had moments, particularly over the summer at home, where I thought, you know, I don't know how long I'm going back for. It's very difficult to make plans. A couple of us have found apartments. I found it very difficult to find an apartment that I could rent for less than three months because I didn't know if I I thought I was only going to be coming back for two. It is tricky. I don't know what I will do work-wise if I'm out of a job on the 31st of October. I'll have to find something else. Um, The older you get, the harder that gets, it seems. (laughs) So, yeah, I would say it is quite stressful. Moving on to the podcast now, and you're the the first and only podcasting MEP, is that right? Congratulations. Yeah. So how did that come about? I was thinking about how I could communicate what I do because people don't understand what MEPs do. And I thought the most effective time to do this, to explain this job to people, is going to be while I'm discovering it myself uh, because then it will feel very real and immediate. And I thought about writing a blog you know, as you know, having been a journalist and having been a writer for a long time, I knew how much time that would take. And I listened to a lot of podcasts and I just thought, I know, why don't we do a podcast? And Judith has a background in broadcasting. um, And I said to her one day, fancy doing a podcast because obviously you need two people to make it work better. And so we just thought we'd give it a go. So we sat down in a radio studio and had a chat. And that was our first podcast episode. And hopefully it'll go from strength to strength it's huge fun i've never done radio before i've done a little bit of tv and lots of print journalism i've never done radio i absolutely love it and the fact that it can be made so widely available and all the different i'm learning about you can get it on the iPlayer, um, uh, is it called the iPlayer? No, not the iPlayer. The uh, iPhone podcast app, uh, which is where I get mine from. But I didn't know you actually got podcasts on Spotify and on Anchor and on. I'm trying to advertise our podcast madly now. <laughs> it's called Our MEP Life. And there are eight episodes up shameless there. Plug. To. A shameless plug. Absolutely. And what kind of feedback have you had so far? The feedback that we have to say, I haven't had a lot of feedback, but the feedback I've had have been, we love it, we like hearing this, we like hearing, it's the slightly unadulterated behind the scenesness. Mm. Um, so we're not scripted. So you don't have a sense of someone following a script. Sometimes we lay out the points we're going to cover beforehand, but we rarely keep them in the same order before we get no, to the end but of the we programme. Have, we have thought quite carefully about what subjects we want to cover. Mm. So we did do a week on, when we were in Strasbourg, you know, we talked about what had been going on there. And then over the summer, we had to pre-record some episodes Mm. so we thought about that in advance but yeah people I know who've listened to it have really liked it and said it's been educational and fun and you know they like to hear what I'm doing yeah and is that one of the aims really to kind of open it up to to your absolutely one of the big reasons that the UK Europe relationship if you like is in such a mess in the UK at the moment is that MEPs on all sides haven't fed back enough and Newspapers have not taken their public service commitment, even commercial newspapers have not taken their public service commitment to spreading honest news. So all that people ever heard were the stupid stories. And I'm not even going to quote them here because I don't want to add grist to that mill. But you didn't get any regular reporting. So I think that it's good that we're trying to spread the message as far as possible. 
And what do you say? I mean, I don't know if you've had any feedback either just in your work more generally or specifically in the podcast. I mean, obviously, Brexit is a very emotive issue. Uh, Politics is a rough business, especially now in the social media age. Have you had to deal with abuse, you know, that kind of feedback? And how, how do you deal with it when people say you shouldn't be, you know, we've had a vote on Brexit, it's been done, you guys shouldn't be campaigning to keep us in? I've had a lot of abuse on Twitter this summer and... I scroll through my Twitter responses and uh, how do I deal with it? Ignore most of it. Occasionally try and engage in a really sensible, non-confrontational way. And I've just had a really interesting email exchange with a lever who got who got in touch with me and started off quite abusive. And I just started dispelling his assumptions and all those myths, you know, one by one, but in a really kind of calm, rational way that wasn't kind of preachy or patronizing and actually we ended up having a really nice email exchange and he said i didn't know any of this stuff you know thank you for telling me yeah so if we could do that with 17.4 million people we'd be laughing (laughs) we'd be laughing absolutely (laughs) no absolutely the um the people who i get criticizing and arguing on twitter normally i'll go back and ask them questions and i ask them why they think that what is it that you believe? Did you know X? You know, and try and fill them in and correct their ideas. But again, not being preachy or haranguing, just letting them know that there's another side to the story. And um, so far, one thing I do regularly is I ask them, why did you vote to leave? And as a documentary maker, I've always wanted to really understand both sides of the argument. And I still do not know one single thing that leaving is going to do that will benefit the UK. Um, let me put you on the spot a little bit. Given given the uncertainty around your positions, if there is a UK general election soon, would you consider running for a seat in, in the UK Parliament? Well, there's an interesting question. I was a parliamentary candidate in the UK in Sarah Wollaston's constituency. Uh, I am no longer the parliamentary candidate there. But none of the MEPs will be running for possibly one of us. But I think most of us will not be running in that election because we're all hoping to still be here. And so we'll we'll be supporting colleagues back home. I was not going to stand again this time and I'm not I don't intend to. I'm very content to be here. OK, let's try some quick fire questions. I'll just say some short phrases and just say the first words that come into your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, the Brexiteers are right about... Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Judith, any disagreement? No, no disagreement at all. Okay, I have heard you talk before about the the Strasbourg switching back and forward. Do they not have a point there? But that's not the Brexiteers. The Brexiteers have never mentioned that. They never bring that kind of thing. People do. Well, everybody agrees. Well, everybody agrees. Sorry, it was Lib Dems were campaigning to stop that Strasbourg-Brussels switch. We've been campaigning against it for years. Mm. We've done more to try and halt that than any Lever has. Okay. If I could change one thing about the EU? Ooh, I would probably try and stop the Brussels-Strasbourg switch. Okay. Uh, My political hero is, Judith? Vince Cable. Okay. My ultimate political villain is, Caroline? Nigel Farage. Uh, What I like about Brussels is? It's quite a lot like the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? It means there are bits of it I find really familiar and like I feel very, very comfortable here. I feel like I could fit in to this place so easily. Because it's a big organisation? It's a big organisation with a lot of um, ferociously passionate people who work terrifically hard to try and achieve something. And it's subject-oriented, so it's not... some. 
the bureaucratic language is not. You <laughs> Sorry, you wanted. Look, he just asked me a proper question. Um, I try. This is I, quick fire. <laughs> that's true. Well, you know, I can fire quickly. You can fire slowly. Yeah, there uh, you go. No, but that's and and there are, there are great similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, to stop Brexit, the most important thing Remainers need to do is not give up. Okay. What people most often get wrong about the EU is? Control. The EU controls remarkably little that goes on in the UK. UK government could have controlled our borders further. The UK uh, government could have promoted British industry further. The UK government could have changed the conditions for workers so that more British people are employed and, and fewer migrants if they wanted to. But they have chosen not to. And they've chosen not to because they are a tight-fisted Tory government who doesn't really care about anything just, but profit. There's not just Tory governments that haven't, okay. you know. There are, there are other governments that have not enacted laws that we were able to enact under EU legislation and, and we have chosen not to. But I, I would say that the thing people get wrong most is, well, there are two of them. One, and I've heard this on the doorstep so many times, is that laws imposed on us by unelected bureaucrats, which is completely untrue because everything is looked at by elected people like ourselves or ministers... And the EU army. Everybody thinks there's going to be an EU army with an EU general and an EU flag and it's just utter nonsense. (laughs) Okay. If I had to sum up being an MEP right now in three words, they would be... Best job ever. Wow. I don't know if I can top that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, it sounds like a nice note on uh, which to end it. Caroline Vorden, Judith Bunting, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Liberal Democrat MEPs Caroline Voden and Judith Bunting. And that's it for this week. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and to Connor Allen for his logistical help. Reem, Matt, Annabelle and I will be back next week with another edition of the new EU Confidential. 